Our lesson of the day is from Colossians chapter 2. I will begin in verse 13. Here again, God's word. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through your spirit, the truth about your son this day, that we might see his triumph, that we might know the forgiveness we have in him, that we might be assured of your love to us in him, that we might be assured of victory in him. This we pray you would do as your word goes forth. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. J.R.R. Tolkien's masterwork is Lord of the Rings. And uh, if you know anything about Lord of the Rings, you know that it is set in the fictional world of Middle Earth. Uh, Tolkien was once asked, presumably as a joke, uh, if he believed Middle Earth is real. And he responded, one hopes, one hopes. Now, of course, Tolkien wasn't saying he actually hoped there was a real world with elves and trolls and hobbits and magical rings. No, he was saying one hopes there is a world where the power of evil is finally destroyed, because that's really what Lord of the Rings is about. How through the weakness of servanthood and sacrifice, the great powers of evil that haunt the world are defeated. Tolkien was saying, I hope there's a world like that. And I'm sure we hope the same. We see so much powerful evil all around us. Somebody may say to you, do you think this evil all around us, this darkness can ever be defeated? And you might say, one hopes. We want to see these evil powers finally and ultimately conquered. Well, here's the thing. In Colossians 2, Paul shows us we do live in just such a world. A world where the evil powers have been defeated. How have these evil powers been defeated? By Christ on the cross. For on the cross, love has conquered evil. Truth has conquered falsehood. Light has defeated darkness. It's a story that sounds too good to be true. But actually, it's too good to not be true. I mean, even if it wasn't true, you'd hope something like this were true. You'd wish it were true. But Paul shows us here, it is true. This is the good news, what we Christians call the gospel, and it's true. I would stake my life on it. I trust most, if not all of you, would stake your life on it. The truth of this message, the truth that Christ has conquered the powers of evil. Paul shows us what that means here. In Colossians 2, verses 13 and 15, and this is obviously part of a much larger section in Colossians, a much larger argument, but still we can pick out these verses and look at them. It's so rich here. Paul summarizes in these verses what Christ in his cross and resurrection has accomplished. And really there are two key aspects to his work that stand out here. The first is forgiveness. 
So let's talk about that. Forgiveness. It begins in verse 13 with Paul describing their former condition. He says, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This was their condition. Many of these Colossian Christians had been Gentiles. Uh, they had not uh, they had not received the sign of the covenant God made with Israel, the sign of circumcision. And so they were separated from God and separated from the people of God. There were these divisions. They were divided from God, divided from God's Israel. And Paul says they were dead in their trespasses. Adam trespassed in Genesis chapter 3, taking fruit that did not belong to him. Trespassing is when you cross a line. Adam transgressed a boundary. He took something that wasn't his. He invaded a holy sanctuary that didn't belong to him. And Paul's saying, you Colossians, you were in Adam up until now, spiritually dead. You're trespassers because of Adam's original trespassing. But Paul goes on, he says, God has now made you with Christ, made you alive with Christ, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against it, against us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Paul here says, you were dead in your trespasses. The cross is the turning point. For on the cross, God has dealt with this problem. He's dealt with the problem of your trespasses and the resulting death that comes from them. Now, our trespasses have been forgiven. And if we're no longer guilty, we are no longer dead. So in forgiving sinners, God has also brought sinners to life. In forgiving dead sinners, God has also brought dead sinners to life. But how has God done this? Paul explains. He has taken the record of our debts and nailed it to the cross. Now, what is this written record of our debts? Some think the written record here are uh, the accusations of the law against us, perhaps the curses of the law, the law itself being a handwritten document that stands against us. Others see it as a record of our sins. Uh, it, it's a record of all of our wrongs. And to me, that, that even though I think both are possible, that seems a little bit more likely. It's a record of our sins. Paul's using a metaphor here. It's as if God had a written log of all your sins, and he took that written record of all your sins, and he nailed it to the cross. Those are debts. Debts you owe. The record of our debts is the record of our sins. So think of everything you've ever done wrong. I mean, I know you can't do that in the middle of this sermon. You can't do that really at all. But think of everything you've ever done wrong in thought, word, and deed. Okay, And then multiply that several times over because there's all kinds of sins that you've committed that you don't even know about, that you're not even aware of. Every sin you've ever committed. God took that long, long list of wrongdoings, the record of your debts, that massive IOU you could never repay. He took that whole thing and he nailed it to the cross and it died with Jesus. And that record of your wrongs now has paid in full, stamped on it in his blood. Your debts have been canceled. The written record against you, the record of all your wrongs, the record of your debts, it's all been canceled. You've been set free from those debts. We were bankrupt, but Jesus in his infinite riches has covered our debt with the priceless payment of his blood. That was the only currency 
worth enough to cover our debts. There's no amount of silver or gold you could pay to cover your sin debts. Only the blood of Jesus as the God-man, blood of infinite worth, could cover our debts and pay what we owed. Christ took what was ours, our shame, our guilt, our sin, our death sentence, our wrath, our hell, our debts, and He's given us what is His, His glory, His righteousness, His life, His love, His inheritance, His, His riches. He's given it all to us. This is how Martin Luther put it. He said, Christ, you are my sin and my curse, or rather, I am your sin and your curse, your death and your hell, and you are now my righteousness, my blessing, my life, my grace, my heaven. That's exactly what God has done on the cross because we're united with Christ. All that is His is now ours. All that was ours, He's taken it on Himself and dealt with it. And so your sins have been blotted out. The record of your sins has been erased. It's interesting. In Numbers chapter 5, there's a really obscure law. I don't know if the Israelites ever followed this out or not, but it's very interesting. A woman who is accused of adultery, has she's accused by her husband of adultery. She has curses written in a book against her. And the priest writes out all of these curses against her in a book. And then he takes some water from the temple, and he uses that water to wash away all the curses. And that may be the picture here we have when Paul says our debts have been blotted out. The curses against us have been washed away by the blood of Christ. Washed away, we could say, by the waters of baptism. Paul just mentioned baptism right before in the, in the verses immediately preceding. In the waters of baptism, God washes away the record of your debts. Those debts are blotted out. That's the good news. The handwritten bill of debts against you has been wiped out. Now, how does that make you feel to know that? Amen. Amen. How does it make you feel to know that this is true for you? It's too good to be true. It's news that we just can't even take it all in. It brings such joy. If you really understand it, you can't help but smile and rejoice in this to know that this great burden of sin and debt has been lifted. You know, if you've got a mortgage and somebody came along tomorrow and paid it all off, you'd be pretty excited about that. If you had a credit card debt and car payment, somebody came along and paid off all those debts, you'd be pretty excited about that. You would jump for joy. Well, you had a much bigger debt than that a far more crushing load of debt, and it's all been paid. It's been blotted out. You were on death row, but now have been pardoned. You were terminally ill. The doctor said there's nothing that can be done for this patient. And now you've been healed. You were in a debtor's prison, but now you've been released with no further payments owed. It's hard to do better than that. It's hard to find better news than that. But you know what? It does actually get better because there's more here. Paul shows us another dimension of what Christ has accomplished. It is a more complicated dimension, uh, but it is every bit as essential to the good news. Paul here, in a sense, takes us behind the scenes of Calvary. 
behind the scenes of the crucifixion to show us what was really happening when Jesus died and when, as the creed puts it, he descended into hell. Things that were going on that we couldn't see. Angels and demons could see them, but we can't see them. So Paul tells us about them. For us, the cross means forgiveness, but what did it mean for the principalities and powers? It means they've been defeated. It means they've been overcome and subdued. Now, before we unpack what all that means, we have to ask, what are these principalities and powers? It's actually striking how often the Bible uses that language of principalities and powers. What does it mean? Are these human powers? Is this a way of describing human authorities and rulers? That would seem to be part of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, Paul speaks of the rulers of this age as those who crucified Jesus. And so it seems to be referring to Herod and Pontius Pilate and perhaps even the Jewish leadership as well. These principalities and powers, these rulers of this age, those who exercise civil and ecclesiastical authority, they had a kind of power that had been entrusted to them or delegated to them by God. They're included in some way, I think, in this language of principalities and powers. But we have to ask, is there something angelic or demonic about these powers? Because that would also seem to be a part of it. Certainly, if you go back to the Old Testament, you find a great deal uh, about these angelic and demonic powers, and especially how they are associated with different nations. So there's a really interesting passage in Daniel chapter 10. You can go read it. It talks about the prince of Persia. And he does battle with, uh, you know, he's some kind of angelic being, does battle with another angelic being, Michael. And it seems that there's this angelic prince of Persia, some kind of angel figure, heavenly being that is associated with the nation of Persia. And then there's Michael who seems to be, he's called the chief of princes. He seems to be associated with Israel. And somehow... Interactions taking place on earth and in history are in some way mirrored by or perhaps even driven by what's happening in this unseen angelic realm. If you go to Deuteronomy 32, it indicates that uh, when God divided up the nations, that uh, angels, fallen and unfallen angels, were in some way assigned to the different people groups that would emerge in human history. In Isaiah 24, God speaks of punishing, yes, kings on earth, but also powers in the heavens, that when the kings on earth are being punished, the heavenly powers associated with them are punished as well. It's all very strange. It's very strange to us. I mean, we don't know much about the angelic world or the demonic world. We don't know how angels and demons interact with history and with nations and in our own lives. There are little clues, little bits and pieces here. We might be able to at least say this on solid ground. These heavenly powers seem to be connected to earthly authorities. It seems there's some correspondence between the visible human powers and these invisible angelic and demonic powers. And when Paul speaks of the principalities and powers, this seems to be at least part of what he has in mind. These angelic and demonic powers that are very much engaged with us in history and who influence and shape human history in various ways even though we can't see them, and even though much about it remains mysterious. And that really brings us to one other layer of meaning here when Scripture talks about the principalities and powers. I think it's not just human authorities and angels and demons, but it also seems to be connected to different aspects of human life, institutions and ideologies and structures that shape human life and society and culture. 
In fact, it's interesting, a few verses earlier in Colossians chapter 2, Paul mentions vain philosophy. This vain and speculative philosophy, this ideology that the Colossians were being influenced by that is not of God, that that does not correspond to God's truth, that's not rooted in God's truth. But this vain philosophy, this ideology becomes a vehicle or a tool for spreading demonic darkness. And we so often see this in the world around us where uh, it seems like there are trends and ideas and fashions and movements that will sweep through a culture and that will wreak all kinds of havoc and destruction in some way bringing order and direction to human life but also marring and disfiguring human life. And so in this sense we can say the principalities and powers are different aspects of the creation that have been captured by forces of darkness and in a sense take on an idolatrous nature. They have idolatrous pretensions associated with them and so they distort and disfigure human life. The state, the family, the corporation, the media, the university, the arts, all of these things can be tied up into the principalities and powers, these different aspects of human life. If I say... Washington, D.C., or if I say Hollywood, there are different aspects of our culture that you know they're power centers. And in some way, they seem to be connected with these principalities and powers. But here's something you need to know. In, In the beginning, these principalities and powers, in their original form, they had to be good because they were part of God's good creation in the beginning. Certainly this is true of the angelic beings. They were all good in the beginning. And it'd be true of all these different facets of life. The state, the family, the, you know, whatever kinds of culture would have developed in an unfallen world, all of it would have been good apart from sin. Colossians chapter 1, it's actually the passage we looked at last week. Colossians 1 tells us the powers were made in and by and through Christ. They were good in the beginning. These angelic beings and social forces and structures that influence human life were good initially. But now the powers have turned against God and therefore they've turned against us. And they become idolatrous. And they become forms of bondage and enslavement for humans. And so money has become mammon. Love becomes Aphrodite. Power has become Mars. These powers have become idols. Wine and song have become Dionysius. You know, when the ancient pagans uh, connected different areas of life with quasi-divine figures, they weren't altogether wrong. This actually connects with what Scripture means by the principalities and powers. Demonic and idolatrous powers have infested all of human life. Of course, the first power to rebel was Satan, uh, as we know him, an archangel who turned into a demon as he tempted Adam and his wife in Genesis 3, leading them away from God. And ever since then, the principalities and powers have been associated with human bondage, with idolatry, with the kingdom of darkness. When people worship false gods, they may or may not be actually worshiping a demon, but you can be assured demons are involved. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians when he talks about those who have fellowship at the table of demons. They're actually communing with demons in some way. Demons are actually driving the worship of all these false beings. They're not really what the people say they are. 
They're, they're gods who are not gods uh, in that sense. But they are. There's, there's some kind of demonic activity going on there. Satan controls what can be called the kingdom of darkness. And apart from Christ, all humanity is under his domain of darkness. Colossians 1.13 says God has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. So there is a kingdom of darkness. And all those who are not in Christ in some way belong to that kingdom of darkness. And Christ is now plundering that kingdom of darkness, bringing his chosen people out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. In Colossians 2, Paul tells us Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. So at the cross, what happened to the powers? What happened to these principalities and powers when Jesus was crucified? Christ triumphed over them. That word for triumph comes from a Roman military practice. After the Romans won a great military battle, they would have a parade to celebrate the great triumph. And the Roman general would line up those he had just defeated. And so the vanquished would all be lined up. He would strip them and he would shackle them. And he would humiliate them by marching them down Main Street so everyone could see these are the defeated people. These are the ones we have just conquered. Paul is saying, when Jesus died on the cross, and perhaps when he descended into hell, the realm of Satan, the realm of the dead, this is what he was doing. This is what Jesus has done with the fallen powers. He has overcome them. He has proclaimed his victory on Satan's own turf. He has humiliated Satan and the demons. The son who made the powers in the beginning has now subdued them. Whether we're thinking of these powers as demonic forces or as more abstract influences and ideologies and philosophies that distort human life, whatever these powers are, Christ has tamed them. Christ is Lord over them. The created powers are now conquered powers. Christ is Lord over them all. The cross is a conquest of evil, showing the victim is really the victor. The resurrection is a conquest of evil showing the powerlessness of the powers. The ultimate power of the powers was death and Christ has now defeated death. And so just before He went to the cross in John chapter 12, Jesus says that He will cast out the ruler of this world. He acknowledges Satan has been in some sense the ruler of the world. Ever since Genesis 3, the whole world has been lying in darkness except for little pockets of light here and there that God has caused to pop up and preserve. But now, as he goes to the cross, Jesus is going to cast out the ruler of this world. He's going to exercise the world. The world was demon-possessed, Satan-possessed, and Jesus is going to exercise it. So when Jesus goes to the cross, what is he doing? As he is lifted up on the cross, he is casting down the ruler of the world. As he is lifted up on the cross, Satan is cast down from heaven. And so Hebrews 2.14 tells us at the cross, Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. 1 John 3.8 tells us for this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. The angelic and demonic principalities and powers that once had some kind of mediatorial rule over the nations have now given way to a man. 
a human mediator, Jesus Christ, who now rules over the world in a kingdom of light, who rules over all, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and who rules in love and wisdom, who rules in justice and truth. And so Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 tell us when Christ was raised from the dead, he was seated at God's right hand in heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers, far above all, all dominion and every name that can be named. And because he rules over all the powers, he has delivered us from these powers. The very weapon the powers sought to use to destroy Christ, the cross, has brought about their downfall. It was the ultimate reversal. They thought they were setting a trap for Jesus and actually the trap sprung on men. When they crucified Jesus, they were actually sawing off the branch they were sitting on. The cross was not Christ being conquered at the hands of the powers. It was the powers being conquered by His hands. Yes, His bleeding, pierced hands conquering the powers. It looked like the powers had stripped Jesus, but actually Jesus was stripping the powers. And so we have now been delivered from the principalities and powers. Christ has defeated the principalities and powers for us. He has freed us. But, (laughs) there's a question here, isn't it? Isn't there? Christ has defeated the principalities and powers. Paul says Christ has triumphed over them. But what's the problem with that claim? It doesn't exactly look like it. When we look at the world around us, when we scan the empirical evidence in our own lives and in our culture, it's very obvious that the principalities and powers are still active and influential in the world. It's very obvious there still is a kingdom of darkness in this world that has all kinds of sway and influence. Satan and his demons are still active and at work. False philosophies and ideologies, false movements still are widespread. Our institutions that Uh, govern and shape and structure our culture and our lives all too often seem to be under the power of that darkness. So what gives? Does the gospel not live up to the hype? After all, is Paul kind of a bad salesman who tells you all the great features of this product and when you get it you realize uh, it can't actually do all those things? Is that how the gospel is? Has Paul oversold the gospel? No, I don't think that's the case, but I do think we need to understand some other truths that come to bear here. Paul would say, if the powers have not been defeated, there is no gospel. This is the heart of the gospel, the defeat of these cosmic powers of evil. The first Adam succumbed to the fallen powers, and so he fell himself. That means the second Adam has to overcome the powers in order to deliver us. If he hasn't overcome the powers, there is no deliverance. If the powers still rule, Christ does not. And if Christ rules, that means the powers have been dethroned and defeated. The whole New Testament is really about this. That's why this language of principalities and powers keeps showing up again and again and again in the New Testament. But we still have this question. If the principalities and powers have been defeated, why don't we see it more? Why don't we see more evidence? Well, here's one way to look at it. There's a lot of different ways to approach this question. I'll give you one. You ever killed a snake? You ever crushed a serpent's head? What happens? We just killed one out here actually the other night after an officer meeting. Okay, After you kill that snake, you know what happens? 
it keeps writhing around, doesn't it? It, it keeps thrashing about. And a venomous snake can strike even after it's been fatally wounded. And so it is with the powers. Their fate is sealed. Their doom is sure. But they're still thrashing and writhing about. Disarmed, but still dangerous. Defeated, but still dangerous. And so Paul says things like this in Romans 8, 38 and 39, as Paul is giving us great assurance, piling one promise of assurance on top of another, one promise of victory on top of another. Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says there are all kinds of things that are going to try to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And among those things that will try to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus are the principalities and powers. They'd like to, but Paul says they can't. Which means they're active even though their efforts will ultimately be futile. They will seek to separate us from the love of God in Christ, but they will fail along with all those other opponents of the church, of the people of God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 26, that the powers are presently being subdued by Christ, that this is a process. Yes, he definitively won the victory on the cross, but now progressively it gets worked out in history. It doesn't happen all at once. Just like when the Canaanites were driven out of the promised land, when the Israelites took over the promised land, it didn't happen all at once. It took a really long time to drive the Canaanites out. It was a process. The land definitively belonged to Israel, but there were still Canaanites in the land who had to be dealt with. And so it is. Jesus is Lord. He reigns over all. But those principalities and powers are like the Canaanites that still have to be subdued. And Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, this is a process that will only and finally be completed at the last day when Christ returns and hands over to his Father a perfected kingdom. Right now, Christ is in the process of putting all rule and authority and power under his feet. But it doesn't happen all at once. And of course, it happens in a way that coincides with the church fulfilling the mission Christ has given to us of taking his gospel to the nations, discipling the nations. And so what happens in the meantime? This process is ongoing. It won't be completed until the end. What happens in the meantime? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against other human beings. No, our warfare is against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, and spiritual forces of evil. We battle with them precisely because they're still operative. But it's just like those soldiers in World War II after D-Day knew they had struck the decisive blow against the Axis powers. They knew victory was there, so it was just a matter of working it out, and V-Day was sure to come. So it is for us. D-Day has happened. V-Day is sure to come. We live in the middle. And there were still casualties in the fight in that in-between time. There's still a battle to be fought. Many battles. We're still dealing with a dangerous enemy, but we're dealing with a defeated enemy. So how do we contend with these defeated but still dangerous powers and principalities? We have to identify them and oppose them and in faith take our stand against them. Think about what it was like for the early Christians. The Roman Empire demanded Christians submit to its power. So here's the great model of the principality and power in the ancient world, the Roman Empire. 
And the empire demands that Christians submit to its power and show the the empire unconditional allegiance. Caesar himself demanding worship. Oh sure, Christians can worship Jesus. Every, Every people group's got their own God. And if you want to worship Jesus, that's fine. So long as you will also worship Caesar. Burn a little pinch of incense to Caesar and then everything will be okay. Because then we'll know you're one of us and you really belong to the empire. But the Christians refused. They would not go along to get along. Instead, they planted themselves like a rock in a fast-moving stream. They saw Rome's statist idolatry for what it was. And they exposed its false pretensions. And of course, Christians were persecuted for this. Whenever the principalities and powers are threatened, which they often are when Christians are faithful in their testimony to Jesus, whenever the principalities and powers are threatened, they fight back by persecuting the church. But that persecution always backfires. Tertullian, the church father, understood this well. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He says, the more you mow us down, the faster we grow. And so the church becomes this unstoppable force when she's faithful. Well, what happened with the early Christians in the Roman Empire over time? Because the Christians refused to bow to Caesar, Caesar bowed to Christ. Christians without raising a single kernel weapon, without ever having a a ballot box they could vote in, brought Rome to the ground. They brought Rome to its knees. In the time of Constantine, the persecution stopped. The emperors began seeking to reshape the empire, however imperfectly, and I'll stress that, certainly it was imperfect, but they began to reshape the empire in Christian ways. And so slavery... And prostitution were eradicated. These foundational practices of the ancient world were eradicated. A doctrine of just war was developed. And the empire became more humane. At least for a time, the powers were largely Christianized. At least in principle. And and that's the thing to remember here. The powers are defeated. But remember Colossians 1, Paul says the powers are also reconciled. Paul says there, all things are reconciled through the blood of his cross. Which really means Christ is reordering the whole cosmos, putting everything in its proper place. That's really what it means. And that means some of the once hostile powers, some of the powers that were once hostile to God and to his people, can be pacified and transformed. The once hostile powers can actually become Christian powers and even become instruments of Christ's kingdom. Rather than belonging to the kingdom of darkness, they can become instruments of the kingdom of light. And so what do we see with the Roman Empire? We see Jesus de-divinizing the state. And so now the state can become an instrument of true civil justice. And at times, actually has approximated the justice of Jesus. In Jesus, the idols are cast down. Uh, Take the idol of the family. The family can become an idol. Jesus has de-divinized the family for many in the ancient world and actually for many today. Tribe and clan, blood and soil become a power. A power that holds people in bondage. And it drives what we call identity politics and, and the racism that we associate with that. Any kind of racism or idolatry of people group the powers are behind that because that's what the powers want to do the powers want to divide us and turn us against one another Jesus has de-divinized the world 
And so in Jesus, mammon can become merely money once again. No longer an idol falsely promising happiness and security, but a tool to be used for good. In Jesus, Aphrodite has been defeated, but that doesn't mean we become sexless, passionless creatures. No, it means now sex, love, and romance can be reclaimed for the truth and the beauty of God's design for our sexuality and marriage can be received as true gifts. In Jesus, Mars can be defeated. And so now power can be used not to promote wicked forms of violence, unjust forms of violence, but rather that power can be used to defend the weak and the helpless. In Jesus, Dionysius has been defeated, but that doesn't mean we give up all wine and music. No, it means we reclaim them for Christ's kingdom, enjoying them in accord with His design. Christian, you have been set free from bondage to the principalities and powers. You are freed from slavery to anti-biblical ideologies and philosophies. You're freed from slavery to fads and fashions. You're freed from slavery to human traditions. Freed from slavery to the tribalism of blood and soil, clan and country. You're freed from the idolatry, the bondage of statism. You're freed from the bondage of public opinion. You're freed from the slavery of the fear of death. Freed from slavery to Satan. Freed from slavery to the power of sin. Freed from slavery to darkness. You're free to live in Christ's kingdom of light. Let's give thanks together. Father, we do thank You. We thank You for Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness He brings us, that the record of our wrongs has been blotted out, the law's accusations, the curses that were due to us have all been washed away and erased. And Father, we thank You too that Christ has triumphed over the principalities and powers, that a new human race, a new humanity is being formed in Him, a united humanity in Him. Father, may we live out our role in this new humanity that is the church. Father, we know that the first Adam was overcome by the powers. We know the last Adam has overcome the powers. May we give our allegiance to Him and not to the powers. May we see Him as the ultimate power, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. This we pray, giving you thanks in His name. Amen.